Talofalava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susanna Suzuki. Coming up. That was the best of the best. Take us back 52 years ago. Aitutaki's Auntie Nane shares fond memories of past Pacific Islands forum meetings. Also, considering that everyone kind of prepares separately, the team's feeling really good. Team Cook Islands depart for the Pacific Games in Honiara. And later on, a new report reveals how the criminal justice system in New Zealand is broken for Pacific peoples. But first, Fiji is bracing for the worst as tropical cyclone Mel intensifies to a Category 3 storm on Tuesday night. The country's Met Service is reporting the system is currently a 2, with wind speeds of 111 kilometres an hour. Already the westernmost islands of Fiji are experiencing strong winds of up to 80 kilometres an hour and forecast to strengthen to storm force winds of up to 130 kilometres an hour later on today. The National Disaster Management Office has opened eight evacuation centres with more than 290 evacuees residing. A heavy rain and flash flood warning remains in force for low-lying and flood-prone areas across Viti level. Natural Disaster Management Office Director Vasiti Soko says people must be on high alert. We sincerely plead with members of the public to please stay away and refrain from crossing or swimming in flooded rivers, streams, walkways, drains and crossing. We must also not forget that given the high amount of rainfall recorded so far, the soil is heavily saturated. Therefore, the threat of landslide occurring is imminent. For the latest on the cyclone, head on over to www.met.gov.fj. We'll also be providing the latest updates at rnzi.com. While the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting officially came to an end last week, the Cook Islands are still abuzz with excitement. Aitutaki's beloved Auntie Nane soaked up the community's warmth as she ticks off being involved for a third time. She's been to all three leaders' meetings held in the country where she played an integral role. She met with Tiana Haxton to take a walk down memory lane. Tungane Puria, affectionately known to the locals as Auntie Nani, sits down with a cup of tea in hand and slides over a black and white photograph. Captured is the first ever Pacific Islands Forum Leaders' Meeting in Rarotonga in 1971. She points herself out amongst the crowd in a lineup of prime ministers, premiers, and official delegates, fondly recalling the event. Oh, the forum can't beat that one. That was the best of the best. Take us back 52 years ago. That's when the first forum was held. That was a beautiful forum held in Rarotonga. The people and the community got together. And then the 97 one and then the 2023 one. But out of all that, the 1971 was the best. Among a team of Cook Islanders, Auntie Nani was specially selected to be a liaison officer for the leaders that travelled to Rarotonga. In 1971, she cared for Papua New Guinea's first premier, Michael Somare. In 1997, she attended to Australia's John Howard. Her eyes lit up as she reflected back on the excitement of her assignments. Uh, the best part is I can remember when, we, when uh, I was chosen to be a liaison officer, I was so proud because uh, <laughs> I don't know how to share it, but it was so beautiful being with the Prime Minister all the time to their functions, to their 
and to their hotels and uh, in their cars when they travel. The liaison officer is always with them. I met a lot of the prime ministers that arrived during, in 1971, but we are always uh, with the chief liaison officer, that's Sir Tom Masters. She was only 18 years old at the time of the first forum, and while she has just recently celebrated her 70th birthday, she is still full of energy and was more than keen to take on responsibilities for this year's event. Her role was less strenuous this time around, as she was in charge of driving official delegates in Aitutaki during the leaders' retreat. A VIP drive out, but I was happy to meet all the High Commissioner to each of the country and all the official delegation I carried and uh, the securities, the policemen and all the overseas might. I was just very happy that I've been given that opportunity to look after them. And uh, it's so nice to see the leaders from overseas and our people here in Naitutaki getting together. Mm. And with beautiful smiles, that's all the leaders want. Smile, sweetheart. Auntie Nani's smile lights up the room as she shares more of her photographs, giggling as she points herself out teaching Somari the traditional Cook Islands dance. She left quite an impression on the late Premier, as it was he who posted these photographs to her, enclosed in a handwritten note. The photographs are a beloved treasure, but it is the stories behind each one that bring the stills to life. I'm so glad that I got all these photos. It's a beautiful memory. That's my experience. And I'm so very proud to have these memorable photos. As we finish our cup of teas and the sun sets beyond the Aitutaki Lagoon, Auntie Nani lets out a breath, content. While the forum may be over, the memories of the week are alive and dancing in the twinkle of Auntie Nani's eyes. The President of the Federated States of Micronesia has told Lydia Lewis his country could be staring down a fiscal cliff if the U.S. Congress doesn't approve its Compact of Free Association urgently. The Federated States of Micronesia started its new administration in May, led by President Wesley Simina. At the tail end of the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Summit in Rarotonga, he sat down with Lydia, who started off by asking about domestic issues. The United States and the Federated States of Micronesia were able to sign off on our uh, Compact of Free Association. But, you know, it has to go through Congress for its approval because of the funding and other uh, requirements of the U.S. laws. So our part is done. Our Congress has ratified it. Our state governments have approved it, endorsed it, and we have sent it to the uh, FSA, I mean U.S. Congress. And now it's with them. But given the you know, situation in their own Congress, uh, uh, it's kind of held up. But right now, we're hopeful because in, hopefully in the next few weeks or few days, uh, it will be introduced as, uh, for the U.S. Congress to consider. So we're hopeful that pretty soon we will have uh, some funding sources through that uh, compact uh, mechanism. And what are the implications if it doesn't happen soon? What are you working out within your government at the moment and what measures are you putting in place? 
Well, if nothing works out, if the con U.S. Congress uh, does not approve it in time, uh, we're faced with a fiscal cliff. That means we will have to find sources from uh, uh, different sources of funding, and that's not uh, out there available immediately. So, uh, what we understand is that <coughs> the U.S. Congress also understands that situation, and they're working very hard. And we're very grateful that even during this uh, situation they're faced with in the partisanship in the U.S. Congress, that is one issue they have agreement on. The Republicans, the Democrats, the Senate, and the House, they act actually have uh, you know, agreement on working to uh, push approval of the compact of free association. So for that, we're grateful to the United States Congress for its... What are your priorities for this term? Well, for this term, uh, if you had noticed uh, during my inaugural address, I used uh, one phrase, and that is, our unity is our strength and our prosperity. And what I meant by that is that the unity of our four states, because we have four states in our uh, uh, nation, and we have to unite them. We have to find the common grounds that will keep us together. So we're working on that uh, very hard. And uh, we understand a lot of these common uh, things that run through our four states are similar things. Because they're islands. You know, climate change is a huge problem. Infrastructure is also a huge problem, both in physical and other uh, so we're, we're trying to make sure that we get through that, at least trying to keep our the ropes of unity, yeah? to keep tying up our uh, states. And from that, we are also looking at our own region, the Micronesian region. We have five governments to deal with, and being the chairman of the NPS, uh, I am very mindful of that. So that kind of unity we want to also bring out to the uh, our Micronesian region as well. And of course, from there, we want to move to the Pacific region. So it's, it is something that we're uh, really, my, mid, my being here, my first time, I'm very happy to learn that the Pacific way is working. Yes. So that's how we want to uh, look at things at this point. Your predecessor, President Panuelo, highlighted some very damning allegations of external powers before he he left office. Have you felt those pressures from China or external powers? Well, thank you for that question, because I'm, I'm sure that's something that's been going around. But I cannot speak to what my predecessor, uh, President Panuel, said. I don't know or where he got those uh, mm -hmm. claims from. Maybe he had his sources. Mm -hmm. But for me, at this time, we have no evidence of any of such, those things, whether they existed or not. That's... That's not there out there for us to see immediately. Have you felt any external pressure? Uh, not really. Uh, China, for your information, uh, People's Republic of China is a very good friend of the Federated States of Micronesia. We have diplomatic ties with them, so we operate within the norms of uh, diplomatic relationships. So there is, I don't see nor, nor do I feel any kind of pressure that some may have uh, thought were there or happened to them, so that, that much uh, I don't know. And what about relations with Taiwan? 
We have our economic relations with uh, Taiwan too. Uh, we sent uh, people there for business purpose, for economic purposes. So there is ongoing, uh, you know, uh, exchanges of uh, our business people going there. Uh, so we don't have any issue with uh, Taiwan. Also, I mean, they have their own. Two of our uh, friends in uh, with the freely associated states, Palau and. The marshals, they have a relationship with Taiwan, and we have no objection, we have no problem with them. Have you had any pressure, though, from um, People's Republic of China not to have relations with Taiwan? Well, you know, we have the one-China policy, and there is that element out there. Mm. So whatever that uh, one-China policy entails, we, we follow it, because that's mm. part of our diplomatic relations with uh, uh, People's Republic of China. Thank you. And now moving on to the COVID recovery, um, many of the other prime ministers and presidents that I've spoken with here say that the COVID recovery is a, an uphill battle. Oh, there, there, is no, there is no question that uh, the impact of COVID-19 was real for us economically, socially, and all this. But uh, I would say the Federated States of Micronesia was one of the luckiest uh, uh, nations in the Pacific because uh, we took... Uh, quick action in locking down uh, our uh, nation borders. And uh, it was President Banuelo who started that, and the Congress, I was the speaker then of the FSM Congress, and we uh, made sure that those, uh, uh, you know, restrictions are in place. And we were one, uh, I think almost three years, we were in, uh, in a lockdown. And that also th uh, didn't help. Because that means we need to bring in uh, commodities, uh, supplies, and all those things. So it really impacted our economy, especially in the tourism area. <clears throat> but fortunately for us, we had a little money that uh, we set aside for these things. And Congress, our FSM Congress, appropriated those fundings. And then we had assistance from ATB and, of course, the U.S., and what happened is that during that lockdown, we were able to uh, vaccinate our citizens way up, so the vaccinations were very high. So when that COVID-19 actually came in, the impact was minimal. It wasn't that much. There were a few people who died, but maybe old people or people who were already uh, sick. <laughs> so we were very fortunate that we were able to put in place some uh, restrictive means or some means to uh, combat the uh, impact of uh, COVID-19. What is the deficit following COVID-19 and how do you plan on building back and recovering? Well, for us, uh, of course, the uh, tourism industry is uh, you know, uh, private. Those are private businesses, hotels, you know, dive shops, those kind of restaurants. So what we did is that we provided, I think, about uh, 70, 14 million to 15 million from our own, uh, you know, uh, local revenue. So that kind of helped those uh, businesses, the hotels, uh, restaurants, who were impacted by the closure, huh? the lockdown of our uh, borders. And uh, what happened is that after, uh, during that same time, like the uh, uh, ADP also provided some grants, some funding, so we were able to support 
those people who became unemployed because of the... So there was those assistance that came in uh, at the time. So we were able to continue to uh, support our tourism uh, industry. And right now we're just continue to make sure that the tourism tourists come back, all these things. So we're working on transportation and to see if they can bring in bring back the tourists that we lost uh, during the COVID. What's yes. your predominant market? I, I don't think it'd be easy for me to get there from Aotearoa. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's, that's why these kind of uh, meetings that we have, is very, the connectivity huh? mm-hmm. is very important to us. And it's not just connectivity in terms of the transport of goods and supplies, but also transport of people, like tourism. So we're really exploring all the different uh, options that are out there. We're visiting all these different uh, <coughs> countries with airlines. We're also establishing our own transportation task force. They will look at all the different options, airlines, sea transport, to see how we can put together a package that would develop and become uh, you know, uh, useful in the uh, transportation uh, industry, yes. And as I'm speaking with you, we're at the Pacific Islands Forum, and being such a significant figure in the Micronesian bloc, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what transpired. Is there going to need to be an apology from any of the leaders to Nauru? because of what has transpired, or where does it sit at the moment? Give me a lay of the land. Apology for what? The fact that Nauru left, I'm wondering whether or not they need an apology for something, if any of the other leaders have, you know, questioned them on issues that they didn't see fit in terms of the appointment of Baron Wanga. Oh, well, as the... For the issue of uh, the appointment of uh, Baron Wanga, that's already a done deal. It's something that's already done. So we were not looking at that. We're looking at our process moving forward into the future. For example, appointment of next uh, uh, SG, if it comes to that, after um, the terms of Wanga's terms are up. And of course, we are also looking at <coughs> how to, uh, you know, make sure that strengthen the uh, the framework that we put together under the SUFA. Yeah. Uh, premises, then that means the establishment of the offices and the employees of those offices. So those are the kind of things we were discussing. What was it that went wrong and needs changing for next time? Well, I'm not sure there was anything uh, that uh, went wrong with the, uh, uh, with the appointment. Uh, but the process itself, because of the special circumstances of the time, so they kind of rushed and put together something, a package that we know it's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what happened. So we were discussing how to strengthen, like I said, to make sure that uh, something like what happened before would not happen again. And we want to make sure that the SUFA equipment will be a model that uh, will be used throughout the uh, uh, life of PIF. Uh, so. We're, we're hopeful that that will be the kind of things to be in place. As you know, it's not, like I mentioned, it's not only the, on the local domestic level, but also on the uh, regional level. We want to make sure that those kind of unity, solidarity will remain in place for as long as we have the Pacific to be called home. Yes. And 
The release of treated nuclear wastewater by Japan, is the Federated States of Micronesia for or against this release and why? Well, uh, you might have heard that my predecessor made a very strong statement in the UNG uh, when he was there, and uh, then that that position has evolved. Right now, we are looking at our position to be based on science, uh, whatever the scientific uh, recommendations, and that's where we are right now. We're just and the thing that we were more concerned about right now is how to. Uh, make sure that the monitoring is very effective and timely so we can continue to deal with Japan. And we also ask Japan to embed into the Palm agenda every year uh, the uh, discussion of uh, this uh, issue on uh, nuclear waste. Ten Cook Islands have departed and have been given a strong send-off in the lead-up to the Pacific Games. The multi-sport event happens every four years among athletes from around the Pacific, and this year it's in Solomon Islands from 19th November to 2nd of December. The event sees 5,000 athletes and officials come together to compete across 24 sports. The Cook Islands team general manager, Jason Lindsay, is taking a 250 contingent and 14 federation teams. Alicia Foon spoke with him at Auckland Airport on his way to the Solomon Islands. The team is feeling really good. We had three pre-events last week. and We had our uniform blessing, march and a parade through town, and then we had a church service um, as a team. So I'm um, considering that everyone kind of prepares separately. The team's feeling really good, really together and... They're really lively, which is really good. Really excited for it. And which teams will be representing the Cook Islands? Yes, so um, we're taking 14 federations. Uh, we're, we have a team of um, athletics com- competitors, um, which is across of runners, um, throwers and jumpers. Um, we have a couple of swimmers um, who have also competed for us in the Commonwealth Games and one of them's competed for, for us at Olympic level. Uh, we have a couple of boxers, um, then we have a team from golf, um, a men and women's team from football, uh, men and women's teams from League 9s and League seven, uh, Rugby 7s. Uh, we have a tennis team of men and women that are going to play singles, doubles and a mixed team. Um, and we also have two volleyballers who are going to play beach volleyball, two weightlifters that have recently competed in Samoa, we're taking just under 250 in our contingent, which is huge for us. Yeah, that is huge. And um, expecting some, some gold and some big wins in there? Yeah, it's a really good thing. Like We put a lot of effort into our training. Um, a lot of our local money goes into this event um, because it's something where we can perform really highly in um, and something that our whole country gets behind and supports us to do. Um, on behalf of myself and the Chef de Mission, uh, Mark Short, uh, we'd just like to thank all our families back home in Australia and New Zealand that have helped get us here um, and get us to Honiara, um, and we hope we can do our country proud. A two-part report published last month explores Pacific people's experiences with the criminal justice system in Aotearoa, New Zealand. The report's lead author, Litia Tui Borelebu, says the first-hand accounts of individuals who took part in the research reveals how the system is institutionally racist and fundamentally broken. Litia Tui Borelebu joins me on Pacific Waves. 
Kia Can you tell me a bit about your reports on Pacific peoples and the experiences with the justice system? Certainly. So this is a piece of research uh, funded by the Michael and Susan Boren Foundation, although it uh, reflects the view of the researchers, um, not the foundation. Uh, it is a qualitative study that looks into, as the title suggests or says, Pacific people's experiences uh, within New Zealand's criminal justice system. Um, and that ranges from people who have uh, offended, um, a few who have survived um, offending or survivors of harm, family members, as well as Pacific peoples who are working in the criminal justice space. So it uh, has quite a wide scope uh, in whose stories um, we were able to gather from our knowledge holders. And in many ways, it is, help, it is there to help address a very clear gap in particularly legal research around Pacific people's lived experiences of the justice system um, we don't have a lot of work, you know, done on done on this issue. There has been some work done by some amazing Pacifica scholars, but a lot of the work that has been done has often not been from Pacific researchers, um, and it didn't involve actually speaking to people within the community. So that's um, something that this research hoped to address, um, and for future research by by others to keep working and developing on. How long did this research take and how many people were involved in this report? So it started uh, officially at the beginning of 2021 and obviously there were was about a six to eight months delay with COVID um, and being able to talk to people directly. Um, So it's taken about two and a half years, which is a little bit over than the initially intended timeline. And it was a research team of four of us uh, so myself being the lead researcher, and then my three awesome uh, research assistants, Liz, Hugo, Bella and Gabriella. And then we spoke with uh, over 50 knowledge holders. So some of them were spoken, we spoke with individually, others came in groups uh, as well. I think the total number was, I think, about 58 um, off the top of my head. So when you say knowledge holders, they... Uh, offenders and survivors? Uh, everyone we spoke to. I, I don't really like to use the word like research subjects or research participants mm. because truthfully we have more, they have more to teach us than we really can offer um, and I, I wanted it to make sure to make sure that when we spoke with, you know, whoever we spoke with, it was about honouring their experiences and, you know, collaborating with them that you know, they hold the knowledge and we have the generosity of their time for them to share their, their stories and experiences with us, which is, um, you know, it's an important and serious role that we, we take on in doing that. And, uh, I, yeah, I don't like to see the researcher as above the participant. It should be an equal working relationship. And what were the key findings in this report? Mm. So I guess to talk about the key findings, um, it's worth sort of re, re, restating what the research question was, which is to address or what are the key systemic issues affecting Pacific peoples within the justice system and how might those issues be be overcome. So the findings slightly differentiated between each of the groups that we spoke to. However, overall, what was really coming across very strongly with everyone was that socioeconomic disenfranchisement 
you know, across generations with our Pacific communities was the most cited risk factor that was of um, driving those into ascending, um, but as well as being a barrier for those in accessing justice and navigating the justice system. And those, you know, that that's not something new, but it was interesting to hear that from various individuals across the research um, and just the way that socioeconomic stresses um, are really intimately tied into issues relating to um, culture and identity and family expectations and just being able to access justice at the very first instance and move through the system. Um, we also had some interesting perspectives, or sorry, interesting is the wrong word, uh, some actually sobering perspectives around our specific people's experiences within prison. Um, again, that's not something we often get insight into as, as you know, members of the public. What happens in prison is very much, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, but we thought, thought it was really important to speak to those who had been incarcerated to learn about their stories. And what we heard, yes, very sobering, um, that prison was deeply lonely, isolating, a very toxic environment, and did not meet the rehabilitative uh, objectives that it, it sets out to, to achieve. Um, in addition to that, there was a lot of frustration expressed about uh, particular family members' experiences moving through the justice system, um, and as well as survivors who expressed, uh, one of them expressed feeling incredibly exhausted, um, re-traumatised by the system, and just that lack of agency and the inability that they felt to have a voice in the matter and a say in the matter, in their own matter, um, as well as family members not finding that there was adequate cultural um, or collective support available to them, whether they were um, a family member of someone who was a victim of harm or someone who was an offender, that they felt very isolated from that process as well. So uh, although there's been a lot of, I think, um, what's the word, lip, uh, lip service given to you know to diversity, equity and inclusion within the legal profession and within the justice sector, you know, over the last few years, particularly since 2018, that the sort of, sort of material realities of people navigating the system, particularly Pacific peoples, is, is not really improved, nor has there been really any substantive structural change there as well. That's Pacific Ways for today. To listen back, head on over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, till fast we forward.